0: You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are, or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to MedSLPCollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is the
1: Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Bianca Colson. She graduated from the University of Pittsburgh in 2008 with a master's from Towson University in Maryland and has been working at Sinai Rehab Center at Sinai Hospital as an adult medical SLP and has 12 years of experience in a variety of settings. She received a certification as a brain injury specialist while in acute rehab and has completed certifications in vital STEM, LSVT, and fees. Throughout the past few years, and specifically during COVID, she was feeling very discouraged about the lack of family and patient-centered care. She developed strong relationships with chronic disease management and palliative care teams to support and learn from conversations with nutrition decisions when patients were demonstrating risks with PO intake. In 2021, Sinai Hospital of Baltimore recognized Bianca as a specialist in the area of palliative dysphagia. Through years of extensive research and work through the Nutrition Care Committee, her hospital has elected to adopt a diet order set titled the Permissive Dysphagia Diet, which includes educational resources for careful hand-feeding and a hospital-wide education protocol for counseling families and patients on decision-making for long-term nutritional needs during acute and chronic illness. The power plan was just initiated in June of 2022, and thus initial outcomes data is still pending. The overall goal is to enrich the conversation surrounding decisions for enteral nutrition to provide a risk verse benefit, rather than identifying aspiration, and recommending ANH for those patients who may not benefit or those that choose not to receive non oral feeds. So far, Bianca has been able to reach her affiliated subacute rehab and skilled nursing facilities, her neurology team, hospitalist team, and nursing staff through a hospital wide continuing education presentation and a poster presentation. Her goal is to reach outpatient primary care physicians and hospitals across Maryland to change the culture toward a more patient and family-centered approach in discussions surrounding dysphagia and decision-making for alternative nutrition options. Thank you, Bianca. This was a fantastic conversation. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the Medislp Collective and Medislp Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, My goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together, we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas, because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Bianca.
2: Hi. Good morning. Oh, yes, it's afternoon now. Good afternoon. <laughs> good afternoon. It's before lunch. Still, yep. so I feel like. <laughs> Thank you
1: so much for joining me. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. So, tell the people a little bit about yourself.
2: Sure. So I am Bianca Coulson. I graduated from the University of Pittsburgh in 2008 and got my master's degree at Towson University in Maryland. Got my start in my clinical fellowship year in a skilled nursing facility. It was actually kind of interesting. I was split between two different buildings. One was a retirement community, which was assisted living, independent living, and a subacute rehab unit. And then I would spend the other half of my day in a skilled nursing facility doing long-term care and subacute. Um so I, I kind of got my start in the in the rehab world. And then after my clinical fellowship year, I landed this amazing job in an acute rehab um, at a at a big um hospital in Baltimore and um worked with this amazing team that taught me a lot about rehab. Um, about dysphagia, about aphasia and really found my passion. Um, and I also learned kind of what a really well oiled machine looks like, um, working in, in that hospital. So then I took a little hiatus, uh, to have my second baby and I just worked. PRN and got um, acute care experience, outpatient experience, and got a a bunch of different different experiences under my belt, working across the continuum of care um, and just kind of figuring out, you know, how to be flexible and how to um, accommodate my clinical beliefs and my clinical practices according to each team that I worked with. Kind of knowing in the back of my brain really what the gold standard was for for treatment and care and... um, I have, uh, now, since COVID, have returned to full-time acute care position um, where I was really supported to grow professionally and um, have really developed a niche um, in one specific area, which is um, working closely with the palliative medicine and chronic disease management team to uh, accommodate decisions surrounding nutrition. As we look into not end of life, but almost just, you know, creating goals for each of our patients. Yeah. Um, so yeah. that's kind of the gist of my career. Yeah.
1: But is there one specific instance or has it just always been a passion for you to go towards this palliative care population? I'm always curious. I wow. am
2: so happy you are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There were a couple, um, specifically mostly happening in the outpatient population where um I was assigned to do outpatient modified barium swallow studies at this one smaller community hospital and then another one doing outpatient studies and I will never forget one of the the first outpatient modified barium swallow studies I had ever done um my patient had aspirated everything and and this is a gentleman that was coming in from the community um and just said you know I feel like I get food stuck in my throat sometimes and he aspirated everything And I was green and I had never done an outpatient study. And I asked my mentor at the time, oh my gosh, what do I do? You know, he's, he's got a a ride coming to pick him up. And she said, well, you have to walk him to the emergency department. And I said, I do. Why? Well, if he needs a feeding tube, you need to walk him to the emergency department and have them admit him and write your study and give them your report and, and they can place a feeding tube. And I was like, Oh, Oh my gosh. And I cried. And I said, I can't do that. And she walked me through the process. We literally walked this man from the community down to the ED that, you know, you're aspirating and you can't swallow and you need a feeding tube. And that was my first, like, Oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm doing this moment. And then it kind of continued. I worked at a couple of other hospitals where we would reach that decision even as an inpatient you know here's a study whether they're coming from the community or they're you know coming into the hospital for something completely unrelated to dysphagia and they would say okay well you know you either need a peg or we're gonna we're gonna um, consult hospice so you either can can get the peg and go to rehab or you can go comfort care and and go to hospice and I said there is there's got to be something wrong with this. Like that can't be our only option for these patients. Yeah. So I just developed a very strong relationship with the amazing palliative medicine, like, you know, bare bones. There's always like one or two in every hospital, um, yeah. Yeah. nurses or nurse practitioners. And I learned a lot from them. And then thanks to you and the SLP collective and listening to your podcast, um, I learned a lot about the, the overview, which we can get into more detail, I'm sure, but, you know, just outweighing the risks and benefits of either eating or feeding tubes and learned that feeding tubes are really not always the best answer in a lot of these cases. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I would say that isolated incident and that fear of, you know, that it's black and white, it's one choice or the other. I just knew that there needed to be something changed. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much
1: for sharing that. Welcome. All right. So, so where should we start? We want to talk about today.
2: So I guess when I inventoried like our neighboring hospitals in Maryland, I couldn't find any one hospital that had a real process for how to manage these patients. I reached out to them and they said, well, you know, our speech therapists really don't manage these conversations. We consult our palliative team. We hand it over to them. And then they go on to discuss the nutrition goals. And most of the time they end up feeding them what they call like a pleasure diet or a comfort diet. And I said, okay, like I I understand that to a degree, but some patients are really not palliative, right? Some patients, they do want to go to rehab. They do want to recover from their stroke, but not have to get the feeding tube. And there is that gray area, you know, outside of our terminally ill or ad- our advanced dementia population that I really felt like we were underserving. So I, i inventoried all of the hospitals I could think of that I had connections with and really nobody had a process. So I found, actually, I did not found, there was a resident doctor who found this protocol, I guess from England where they have this really long guideline of, you know, discussing goals of care and how it pertains to nutrition. And I thought this is perfect. This is a great framework. And at the time I was uh, working at a smaller community hospital that was under the same uh, umbrella as my current facility. And so we were kind of working together hospital to hospital, and they thought that the smaller community hospital would spearhead this protocol for nutrition decision-making. So I kind of spearheaded this nutrition care committee with a work group. I worked with the director of um, quality and risk to kind of outline this. And he said, this is a great idea. I think that, you know, we should have some kind of a guideline or protocol, but I think it should be only for patients who are DNR, DNI. And I was like, oh, I kind of feel like we're in the same Boat were kind of like strong arming people to change their code status based off of what they want from a nutrition standpoint. And then the sister hospital that had a really active NP on their palliative care team was like, nope, we absolutely cannot have a protocol that's only specific to DNR, DNI. You, you cannot do that. You cannot, you know, force somebody to change their goals of care based off of whether or not they want to eat. So it went through ethics, it went through legal, it went through risk, and a year, year and a half later, <laughs> through COVID, we created a it's a it's a power plan um, with a specific diet order set that outlines those who have been identified as aspirating um, and have chosen an oral route of nutrition, especially when we outline you know the risks of the, the alternative feeding method. Outweighing the benefit, so we have a a specific diet order set um, that has been created for our hospital. And so far, I'm working on some outcome data, but so far, it's really helping to change the culture and the way in which we view these patients. That's great. That's great. Yeah.
1: Tell me a little bit, Bianca. How how does that look compared to doing like an informed consent or doing like an AMA? Because I know there's all these different Hospitals do different things with different labels, and sometimes it all essentially is the same ending, but they have these sort of horrific connotations attached to them.
2: Right. Yeah. So – when I worked in skilled nursing, there was, you know, there was a waiver yeah, waivers, and signed yeah. this waiver that says, like, I refuse your recommendations. And we liked to use that word. They refuse and yeah. non-compliant. Yeah. 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 And it felt so cruel. And then really, as a therapy team, we would see that non-compliant or refusal or they signed a waiver. And we would just drop them from our caseload. We'd be like, oh, they're making, they've made their choice. They're not following my recommendation. They're, you know, they're, they're out of my caseload. But when we, when we title it a specific diet, not only are we not just handing them a sheet of paper to say, Oh, you don't want a feeding tube? Sign this paper and then put it on file. Legal, the legal team that was involved in the decision making for this diet order set, they said that that form in itself, whether it's informed consent or a waiver or an AMA form, it, it muddies the water. So you're, you're handing them something that they may not understand what they're reading. Maybe it's not in plain language. Um, Maybe they just don't have the, the health literacy to really understand what they're signing. And then it takes away from the conversation. So our our therapists are not having the conversation with the family. The doctors are not having the conversation with the family. And then we really have no true documentation of what was discussed. Did we actually outline the, the benefits of eating? Did we outline the risk of using a feeding tube, whether it be an NG or a PEG tube? And it just, it doesn't hold up in court. So even legally, just handing them this piece of paper that says you signed this, It does not protect the hospital if we don't document thoroughly that we had the discussion and we received informed consent. So that's that's how it differs. I think it's kind of forcing us to have more of a discussion and really make the decision a a group effort, an interdisciplinary effort. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Which I think is what so many decisions should be. What a a concept,
2: you know? Yeah. Agreed. Awesome. Okay.
1: Well, where do you want to go from here, Bianca?
2: I think what I struggle with with our new clinicians even is kind of that counseling aspect of, yes. okay, so I know a lot about, you know, I know these predictors of aspiration pneumonia, right? I would, I think a lot of our new clinicians are catching on that like, I know that thickened liquids are not always the answer. And I know that just because they aspirate does not mean, you know, they're going to develop pneumonia. But I think that a lot of our new clinicians kind of struggle to have that conversation with patients and family members unless they have a a clinician that's able to model that for them. So I learned from a dear friend of mine that I worked with um, in rehab and then kind of throughout my acute care experience. And she she laid the groundwork for me. You know, she was able to connect with families and and tell them, you know, you, you know, this is what we found on our, our objective imaging study of, of your mom's swallow. And I will tell you that there are two options that we can take here and, and neither option is really great. Neither option is great, but I'm going to talk to you about, you know, what each option is going to look like. And then outlining, you know, what are the benefits of continuing to eat? How can we minimize that risk of not only aspirating, but how can we minimize that risk of developing an aspiration pneumonia? And then on the alternative, you know, not a lot of our new clinicians are very fluent in, you know, what are the negatives of getting a feeding tube, even an NG tube? You know, what are we finding when we say, you know what, your mom had a stroke. It's been four days. Um, we're getting a lot of pressure from physicians to get patients discharged um, from the hospital within three to four days. They want a decision about nutrition. So sometimes we're very quick to say, oh, it's been two bedside visits. And it's time for them to get a feeding tube. And I think that that's kind of the easy route is to say, you can't swallow. It's not safe. You can either get an NG tube and stay here for a couple more days, or we can surgically place a peg tube and you can be on your merry way to rehab or or wherever you're headed. But I think providing a little bit more guidance um, for clinicians to be able to have that discussion is super important. And, you know, giving them the confidence to be like, well, I, I do know this information about aspiration and the predictors of pneumonia. I think it's, I think I kind of struggle a little bit with how far we're allowed to go with our knowledge on peg tubes. So there's a lot of research, especially in the advanced age and the advanced dementia population that shows little to no benefit of placing a peg tube. And I think it's hard as a speech therapist, because you know, a lot of the new clinicians will say, like, "Well, that's not my role. Like, I don't, I shouldn't be happy. I shouldn't have to do that counseling and education about the peg tube." And I'm like, "Right, but who is?" <laughs> right. Because I think I don't think that I've ever seen GI document. You know, these are the risks that that could happen with a peg tube. We we have, you know, some of these advanced age, advanced age patients who have poor mobility status and poor positioning they have a sacral ulcer, and then we put a peg tube in, and they we put them two times more likely at risk to develop another pressure ulcer by giving them a peg tube. Um, it limits their mobility even further. It creates more urine and stool, which can get in that wound and create infection. And I think when we don't have someone who's looking at a, at a patient individually and how that peg tube will impact their overall well-being, I think that's why we are very quick to say, oh yeah, they just need a peg. Just place the peg. That'll fix everything. Because I have dove into the literature so much on outcomes for peg tubes, I'm a little bit more, I would say, loose with <laughs> talking to families about like here's some of the things that that I think could happen if if your mother gets a peg tube. But I think that's a that's definitely like a an area of discomfort for some clinicians who don't have those discussions or don't have that knowledge. <laughs>
1: For me, it was very liberating. I think when I realized that I didn't, I was not responsible for making decisions for these patients. Like I was responsible for being the vehicle of information for them. And okay. I think what also where where I also struggle, but I'm the eternal optimist. I'm also a mom of a son with complex needs that we've been through the rigor with this stuff. And and connotation means everything too. You know, it, you can present. The risks and the benefits, but if you're also coming it from coming at it from a fear-based perspective, you know, you know, the peg tube could do this, but if you don't do it, you could die. You know, it's like I've heard some of those conversations before too, and I'm like, no, just present the facts, present what you think is the risk and benefit for this patient, and leave out your own personal agenda and personal bias. And And I know that's hard; it's easier said than done, but. You know, I, I just know, like from conversations I, you know, tough conversations I've been with with my son. You know, I'll hear it, and then I might say, you know, but what would you do? You know, what what do you think is best? Or and and I may not go with that professional's opinion, but I at least am interested in hearing sort of the critical thinking around why they would choose that for a loved one. And you know, so I think if if there's anything from this, I know it's tough conversations to have. We don't get tons of counseling and empathy skills, but it's so important to just present the facts as neutral as possible. And then if people ask for your own personal agenda or perspective, if you have that sort of rapport with them, then that's something else to consider
2: too. Right. And I, I think a lot of times I I also try to open up the conversation with like, do you know what, you know, your mother would want? Or I would say to the patient, you know, what, what do you think you could tolerate for the next, you know, if it's a stroke patient, I just had one the other day he had an imaging study done at an outside facility they put him on a regular diet with honey thickened liquids and he was sent to acute rehab and our young and amazing um one of our new speech therapists on the acute rehab team said i know we just had this modified but he does not seem to be tolerating this diet and i want to repeat it and uh, she did and he aspirated everything And he's a 98 year old man that was fully independent prior to, you know, having his stroke. And she had a hard discussion and he said, I will, I will use an NG tube for a week and undergo intensive therapy. And if in a week I can't swallow anything safely, then we'll have this conversation again. And she, she repeated the modified. It was a little better, but not a whole lot. (laughs) And, and she had to have the discussion with him, you know, do you think you could tolerate having a feeding tube, one that's, you know, surgically placed for an amount of time, like what you can decide. Do you think that, you know, you'd be able to tolerate having a feeding tube for a couple of months? If things don't improve by then, then you revisit this conversation, you revisit your decision, you know, and just under, you know, helping your patients to understand that they're really not married to one decision that they make, you know, let's say they do decide to eat and they, they get sick. They get one bout of pneumonia and they say, you know what, I think I need a little bit more time that they can make those decisions for themselves. And, you know, it, it all is a risk. We don't know the the percentage of the risk, but we do know that 80 some percent of people do recover their swallow within six months after a stroke. So if if we say to this 98 year old gentleman, you know, can you foresee using a feeding tube for six months? And if after six months, things are not improving to the point where you can eat, then you can make a decision that you're going to eat despite this risk of, you know, food and drink going down the wrong pipe but just kind of helping your patient lay out a plan that works best for them with their best interest in mind. You know, I've had patients that say like, well, I'm not a big eater anyway. You know, I kind of lost my taste for food. A lot of our cancer patients are like eating is a chore. You know, it's, it's not something that I'm super interested in right now. I would really, it would take a lot of pressure off of them to have the feeding tube, you know, to get them through treatment or to get them through their dysphagia rehab and outpatient You know, and I think it is just having that, that in-depth discussion with your patient to say, you know, what can you tolerate? What are, what are you feeling? You know, this is, these are some things that could happen with, with either venue of, of nutrition. So I don't know. I don't know if, if you have to be an expert in the area, or if you just have to take 12 minutes and talk to your patient in depth. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, I think what's tough is like what you said is you're not sure Is it our role? Is it our place? I think that's tough because we can't make that sort of blanket statement because in some facilities, you may be that only person. Whereas in other facilities, there may be, you know, I've worked in some facilities that had amazing, you know, registered dietitians that would have these really good conversations. I've learned so much from them about how they approach these conversations too. But I also know that in some facilities, this doesn't exist. So you're, you know, sort of the one, but you know, it sounds like you're also blessed with really good A really good palliative care team as well. So.
2: Right. Right. I think what's, you know, another big barrier is, is the physicians buying in because there's a article that I sent you and it was, it was an article about like the perspectives of physicians and the perspectives of physicians on peg tubes. And there was like a series of questions that, you know, that peg tubes pretty much, do they fix things? Like, do they improve quality of life? Do they, do they reduce, um, do they, do they heal pressure ulcers? Do they prevent aspiration? Uh, do they prolong life? Do they improve nutritional markers? And I, the study was done specifically in regards to those who have advanced cognitive disease. And, you know, these, the doctors that they surveyed were all gastroenterologists. And there was such a large percentage of doctors in that study, such a, a, a a poor representation of the the facts about what PEG tubes are able to achieve in the advanced dementia population and what the doctors thought they were achieving when they placed or recommended the PEG tube. So it's hard especially I think when you look at that long-term care subacute population when you say to a physician um you know Miss Smith has started to demonstrate some symptoms of dysphagia. She's really not eating very much. I'm recommending that we resume um, oral intake with careful hand feeding, um, which is another kind of topic that I, we can dive into um, rather than talking about alternative measures of nutrition. And the doctor is like, oh, I'm not comfortable with that. I'm not comfortable with somebody eating, knowing that they're aspirating or knowing that they're not eating enough. And I think that doctor's perspective on the peg tube is we just need to place a tube and then we're gonna prevent her from aspirating and we're gonna make her live longer and we're gonna improve her nutrition after she's already been malnourished for four months. And I think that there's this misunderstanding of of our physicians about what the peg tube is going to achieve in that population of, of advanced age and advanced dementia. <laughs> so I think it does take a fluent clinician to present the research to the doctors to say, actually, the peg tubes are not supported in this population of patient. And here's why I direct a lot of my new clinicians to the American geriatric society's website, and they have a really lovely statement on the placement of peg tubes in the advanced dementia population. So if anything, I say, if you're not comfortable having a conversation with the doctor, shoot them an email, attach that article and then, you know, kind of learn, learn for yourself so that you can become more fluent in in discussing some of the risks of PEG tubes. Um, you know, if you are the one recommending the PEG tube, you should be able to more fluently speak about, you know, what you're signing your patient up for. Yeah.
1: Do you feel like you have these conversations with other populations, Bianca, or just specifically dementia? Because I know... You know, like head and neck cancer, you know, I know sometimes they'll get pegs for a year while they're going through treatment, but then, you know, eventually they're able to regain their swallow. So I didn't know sort of if there was specific populations that you have this protocol laid out for or is it, does it have some flexibility?
2: Yeah. I mean, it it certainly has shown in our hospital to have some flexibility. I think the, I'll say the easier population to target because we do have a lot of research on PEG-2 placement in the advanced dementia population. They're the easier population to target. um, And I think it is really dependent on whether or not that patient has already established their goals um, their, their advanced directives, um, or if the family has already established, like we would never place a feeding tube. So it kind of gives our docs an avenue to say, okay, well, we do have this, this means of feeding you as safe as possible while you're in the hospital. The other population that we have been seeing a lot is those acute stroke patients. You know, we, the 52 year old security officer, Who came in with a cerebellar stroke and he can't drink fluids safely, you know, and having a discussion with him, we could, we could offer you this, this feeding tube, and that would probably get you safely and, and, and with little discomfort through your rehab course until you recover a swallow, or you have the option of trying to eat and drink and minimizing your risk of aspirating You know, we offer the modified texture if need be, or maybe we try a some kind of a strategy with them. But inevitably we still do have the conversation, you know, you have choices. You know, in that specific patient, I might recommend a feeding tube to, you know, get them through the couple weeks or months it might take to recover a swallow. But that's also the perfect patient that kind of is the perfect example of just because you're aspirating does not mean you're going to develop pneumonia. So that specific patient who has, you know, minimal physical deficits, who is super attentive to oral hygiene. And this this specific patient was like, I floss twice a day. You know, these patients that keep really squeaky clean mouths and they're able to get up and walk around just because they're aspirating does does not really mean that we're going to recommend a, a feeding tube, or we might, you know, some of these patients choose to just drink water. Um, they just do a free water protocol um, while they're recovering their swallow. Um, so I still think that it's worth having the conversation, even if it's not an advanced age, advanced dementia patient that to give our, even our, our low risk of developing pneumonia or our really no risk of developing aspiration pneumonia patients, that choice. But I've also been in the, in this scenario where um, I have found some clinicians just kind of like brush it under the rug, like, oh, they did aspirate things when they drank from the straw, but you know, and, and inevitably they're going to be fine because they have a clean mouth and they walk around and, you know, they feed themselves and they're not smokers and they don't have really any major underlying medical comorbidities. And they just don't tell the patient. And I'm like, well are you going to tell them that they are aspirating when they take big sips? <laughs> like, I don't think you can just, you can ignore that fact. I think that's something that, you know, even a normal human would want to know if you're going to do an instrumental and you find that they're aspirating. I feel that way when I see like a an MRI interpretation and it's like chronic microvascular ischemic changes. And you're like, and then, you know, the doctor's interpretation and the H and P is like MRI negative. I'm like, Oh, But, but it wasn't completely, it was negative for a stroke, but what about the other things you found? (laughs) You know, I think involving the patients and, and empowering them to have knowledge and make decisions is just is in some degree palliative medicine. You're involving them in their decisions about their care and they don't have to, they don't have to sign up for all of the treatment methods that you offer them. You know, they don't have to have the pacemaker, like do we recommend a pacemaker and then say, if you don't get it, you're going to die. Right. 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 Well, that, and to be honest, I
1: mean, that's why I wrote the book that I wrote last year, because I think from having so many conversations with SLPs and then also patients and then also things that I've been through, it's like, we can't possibly know all the nuances of every patient's beliefs and support system. And so for me, you know, I just wanted to empower patients to have this information, so that they can make the best, you know, decision for their care. Because, you know, it's in reality, like you said, take 12 minutes to explain things. But sometimes it's a lot more nuanced than just those 12 minutes Or the patient may have more questions than we have answers for. And and so I think as much as we can empower the patient, hey, you know, do some research on this topic, you know, feel free to call back with any questions. I think giving them the power to really make a good educated decision I think is what really good evidence-based practice is all about
2: right no i agree that's a very good point other barrier the big barrier actually that i had in implementing and getting this power plan approved was the fear of our nurses i again am very fortunate in my facility to have this like powerhouse um, nursing leadership team and they caught wind of what was happening with this, um, what it's, what we're calling a permissive dysphagia diet. Um, I think some facilities might use high risk or pleasure diet or comfort diet. We're using a permissive dysphagia diet because I don't love the word comfort because that assumes that they are comfort care. I don't love the word pleasure because then it assumes that they're just eating for for funsies and not to sustain life. Yeah. And I don't really love the term high risk because some of these patients really aren't that high risk. Um, yeah. You know, they just they don't want honey thick liquids and they want to drink thin. So uh, awesome. Dr. Um, Dr. Black in my hospital, he was like, "It's it's just permissive. It's the same as like permissive hypertension. We're permitting them to have an impairment. And, and we're feeding them anyway. Yeah, um, yeah. but I kind of went on a tangent. Um, the permissive diet, the nursing leaders caught wind of it and they were scared. They were like, so you mean that we are now going to be responsible for feeding patients who are aspirating? And I responded, you already are, you already are feeding patients who are at risk to aspirate every time you start a tube feeding on that continuous NG tube feeder who is in a fetal position and hands are tied down and, you know, they have reflux and they get, they're gurgling at bedside and you're starting that feed. That's a patient who's at risk to aspirate. You know, the patients that are, some of them are aspirating and, and they're just not identified aspirators. You know, you're already giving them food, <laughs> that little throat clear, or that little cough. Um, but, but it was, it was a lot of education They have in the permissive diet order set, there is what they call like a blue text reference that when you hover over it, it brings up specific instructions for careful hand feeding guidelines. So there was a a big training with nurses on how to use their clinical skills and their decision making. And really how to escalate their concerns if things do start to get clinically scary for them, The that route of educating the nurses and letting them know that just because that patient has an NG tube or even a PEG tube does not mean that they're not aspirating. And sometimes the safer route is for this patient to be fed orally. Um, and then outlining the expectations for them. You know, we are not expecting you to feed these patients their entire plate they're, if they're already eating 25% and they have determined that that that's enough for them, then you use your own clinical judgment. You know, you are also a professional and a registered nurse and, or even a patient care technician, like they have their own clinical decision-making that if a patient starts to cough or choke, they can discontinue the meal and escalate their concerns and then giving them a guideline to be able to safely feed that patient, you know, make sure you're doing oral care after the meal. Try to make sure that you see them swallow before you give them another bite. And then it kind of takes the pressure off of them that if the patient has demonstrated signs that they're done eating, or if they say, no, that's enough. Um, or if they start to, you know, get wet, if they have a wet vocal quality, or you start to hear them coughing that you can say, you know what, let's, let's take a little hiatus for this meal and, and we'll come back and try it again later. So I think that that gives it kind of empowered nursing staff to be like, oh, you know, they, they did really well through about half the meal and then they started to get tired. And, and so we stopped eating. Mm -hmm. Um, but the other really positive thing I have found with this, with permissive diet is, Nine times out of 10, it's the family that is making the decision. So like I said, the the big population that this is targeting is, is usually this advanced cognitive disease population. And the families are usually the ones to say, no, I want mom to keep eating. So then I come back to them and say, you know what? We have visiting hours from nine to eight. If someone would like to be here for breakfast, lunch, or dinner, or all three meals, you know, I really encourage you to come at mealtime so I can train you how to, you know, or, or you've been feeding your mom for X number of years, or I can help you be able to feed her safer. You know, let me show you how this is done best. And I have found that families are very amenable to that. They're like, okay, you know, that is my role. This is what I can do to continue to provide comfort to my family member and also keep them safe and, and give them food rather than, Feel like I'm forced to give them a feeding tube because the nurses won't feed my mom or the nurses are scared to feed my mom. You just kind of have to respect the nurses and, and how they feel. And if it's making you uncomfortable clinically, like I'm not going to do something that I'm uncomfortable with clinically. You know, I have, I have people asking me to feed patients on BiPAP <laughs> or can you feed this patient on 90% high flow nasal cannula? Oh, I'm really not super comfortable doing that. Um, nurses, I give them the power. If you're not comfortable and if it doesn't, you know, if it doesn't feel safe to you, then, then it is within your rights to, to discontinue that meal. Um, but then I, I turn to the family and I say, you know what? I understand this is what you want for your mom. Um, our nursing staff is hesitant because your mom is very sleepy this morning. So if you would like this to be done, I would encourage you to come in and, and help your mom eat breakfast. And a lot of families are, are like, okay, yes, I can do that. Yeah. I think
1: a lot of it too is just, is families just want to be heard. You know, like I think there's so much. Anger and resentment when you're just not hurt at all. So it's at least giving them this, you know, hey, let's try this. Like, this is something that's important to you. Like, we're happy to give this a go. You know, I think there's so many times that I'm like, I just wish someone would listen to me. You know, even if it doesn't work out in the long run, could we just try it? You know, and not that I want to be proved wrong, but like, I, I, you know, I may not have seen it in, in the worst light possible. You know, so I think just, Giving our families the benefit of the doubt and allowing them to, you know, have that autonomy to to be heard and, and yeah, if it doesn't work out, if the nurses just really aren't comfortable, then that's another conversation to have. But at least you can say that you gave them a shot,
2: right? So it's a work in progress. <laughs> yeah, we are. Um, I was able to go to um, Future Care, which is a big umbrella of subacute and skilled nursing facility. Um, I was able to go and present a a continuing ed for the speech therapy team there about, you know, nutritional decision making and palliative, uh, decisions surrounding dysphagia. We have a kind of a sister hospital, um, from ours that is also subacute rehab long term. Um, I have lots of, lots of goals for the initiative. One is I'd really like to be able to collect some data. The diet was just initiated in. June of this year, I'd really be interested to collect data to see, you know, if we reduce the number of peg tubes that we're placing and to try to figure out, you know, how many patients have been readmitted on either with a peg tube or on the permissive diet. And then I was very interested to see if we had perhaps reduced the number of hospital acquired pneumonias with use of this diet order set. Just to see how it it differs from before having the option of feeding people orally, if we have maybe reduced that number or maybe re- reduce the number of hospital acquired pressure injuries from NG tubes, just to see how this is going to impact us kind of overall. Um But we don't know yet.
1: <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love yeah. that you're thinking that
2: way. Yeah. Yeah. I think nutrition in general, and I don't know if this is just my hospital, but I think it oftentimes takes a back burner. So, you know, sometimes we're not getting consulted for patients until they've been NPO for seven days, mm-hmm. um, you know, because doctors were trying to figure out if it was a GI bleed or the patient was too lethargic to be able to take PO, but they were, you know, hopeful every day that the patient would turn it around. So they never placed an NG tube. And I think that's just a huge There's just a huge practice gap between, you know, what, what I'm focusing on and what the doctors are focusing on. So I even would hope long-term to kind of infiltrate this decision on nutrition, you know, right. When a patient walks in through the door, like if there's a admission checklist, like would you ever want to be artificially fed? Yes or no. And get that established so that, you know, even the doctor has in their hands, Oh, look at that. They, they don't want an end. They don't want a feeding tube ever. And then help them guide their decision about you know when should we consult speech? Maybe the patient is waking up a little bit, and we can determine when they're safe to eat a little bit, and even even before they come to the ED, maybe we need to get into the primary care physicians' offices and say you know when are you having a discussion with your patients about their nutrition goals? You know when you diagnose somebody with a a terminal illness, you should have discussions before they become terminally ill. A lot, especially if it's these progressive diseases, you know, our, our movement disorders, you, you know, the, the day somebody gets diagnosed with Parkinson's, I would hope that they are starting to discuss, you know, what's going to happen to your swallowing, what's going to happen with nutrition. I think a lot, a lot of, a lot of them are unavoidable. You know, I think if you diagnose someone with ALS, they immediately want to place a peg. And I'm not saying that I don't support that because that provides a lot of life um, yeah. through through that. Um, but I do think that too often we're missing an opportunity when a patient is lucid enough to make these decisions to start talking about the subject before we reach the point where now they can no longer eat and drink and they can't make their own decisions. So I I, I hope that I I listen to the implementation science podcast um, not long ago. And I was like, Oh my gosh, there's like a 17 year gap between what we know and when we start practicing it. So like, it's, it like hurts my heart. I'm like, how long has it been that we've had this information, you know, and how long will it take for, for our primary care physicians to start like tuning into you know, what, what we're doing and what palliative medicine is doing and like what, what we're doing for nutrition. I just think it's so important. And I think we're really behind on having these conversations.
1: I I totally agree. Anyways, thank you so much, Bianca. This was an awesome conversation. Yeah. Yeah, So there's a lot of show notes for you guys. If you're, if you're interested, just go to and You'll be able to download these show notes because this is a lot of great stuff. So Thank you again, Bianca. I appreciate you so much. Sure. Thank you. And that's a wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit SwallowYourPridePodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at theresarichard.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next week.